Well, grace and peace to you. I'm Vicar Derek Kabilis, and this is ExileCast for Wednesday, March the 23rd, in the year of our Lord, 2022. So, I know you're not supposed to talk about fasting, right? Jesus says that you don't you don't want to do anything that would be considered um, going out and bragging about your fast. Don't let the right hand know what the left hand is doing. All of that stuff. But I I am going to talk about my fast today because I think there is something particularly instructive about it. Um. <clears throat> so one of the things you should know is that one of my Lenten disciplines. Uh, this year has been to simply fast on Wednesdays. I just simply have not been eating on Wednesdays. That's that's the fast. And then what I do is I use that time that I would have spent eating and preparing my meal, and I do a little extra reading, and I have an extra prayer time, and then I take the money that I would normally spend on food that day, I estimate about $20. It's not much. I, and I make a donation with it. And th- that's just boilerplate fasting. Okay. That's how Christian folks have been fasting for a long time. Uh, take the time that you would spend eating, spend it in devotion to God, and then take the money, give it to the poor. And to be honest, it's it's not that big of a deal because for me, Wednesday is my busiest day. So I can stay relatively focused on work all day. And honestly, I, I don't even think about it that much. It has been going well these past few weeks. It's been a little tough for me to get to sleep. Night times are hard. But other than that, I've actually been feeling pretty good. And I, I guess I've just been having a good Lent so far. And then today hit. Wednesday came along this week, and for whatever reason today, whenever I have hopped online for anything, uh, social media, website, whatever, I have been inundated with these advertisements for food. Like, really awesome almost pornographic looking food okay and by this afternoon for whatever reason my brain without me even trying to do it was coming up with its own rationalizations for why i should break my fast today why i should just uh, go ahead and eat you know this is silly. I've already fasted for so many hours since yesterday. I've already had my extra prayer time made by donation. Surely I'm plenty spiritual enough. That was an actual thought I had today. I'm plenty spiritual enough already. (laughs) Now I share this story because I think I learned something about how all this is supposed to work today. Or rather, I learned it again because I forgot it from the last time. 
See, there's there's nothing inherently good with fasting, right? It's not like you gotta fast or else you go to hell or anything like that. But it's just, it's an opportunity for growth. It's an opportunity to sacrifice something uh, relatively meaningless, right? I mean, it's not like I'm about to die of malnutrition or anything. I'm, I'm still going to eat tomorrow. I'm still going to be a big fat guy at the end of Lent, you know? I'm just subjecting myself to being slightly uncomfortable, and that's all it is. I'm making this teeny tiny sacrifice so that when the time comes that I have to sacrifice something real, something big, something that might hurt a little bit, something that means a great deal to me for the the sake of God or for the sake of some other person, maybe because I have fasted, it will be just that much easier to do. But even this small relatively meaningless sacrifice gets attacked you know and if you want to say it's it's getting attacked by a demon or something that's fine that's not usually how i put it but it's totally cool totally appropriate it's getting attacked uh you can say by my own inflated sense of entitlement my own body my out of control appetitive desire for food whatever it is even the, the point being that even this this silly little one day fast is somehow too much too hard too severe or at least that's what my body or demon or whatever is trying to tell me <laughs> for the record no I haven't eaten yet, even though I was tempted. It's now almost six o'clock, and I'm confident that I'll be able to go home and do a little reading, drink my tea, and go to bed. But there was a moment there when the temptation was heavy. And the only way that I dealt with it, the only sort of strategy I put in place was I said a simple prayer a very old prayer they call it the Jesus prayer it's just Lord Jesus Christ have mercy on me a sinner that's all it is Lord Jesus Christ have mercy on me a sinner and then I made the sign of the cross and then I did something that I read from I think Thomas Merton a long time ago just a real quick thing what I did was in my mind I simply let go of my right to eat you understand what I mean by that I didn't bear down and force myself not to eat I didn't like psych myself up and say no I'm gonna do that I think that kind of white knuckle mentality honestly just makes it worse most of the time. No, what I tried to do was let go and release that part of me that was insisting that I should eat, 
that I deserved to eat, that I was entitled to it. And what I did was I imagined that that part of me was like some sort of uh, dirty old crow raven thing flying out of my heart and out into the sky and that a nice you know normal Christian dove the kind of dove you think about when you think about the Holy Spirit flew down and perched itself in its place and ever since then I've been fine I felt okay. Anyway, I share that with you as just one more way that maybe you can get through your Lenten discipline, whatever it may be. If you have one, if you're doing Lent this year. Um, But I also share it with you as a strategy for dealing with temptations of all kinds, you know, temptations of the appetite, temptations to be selfish, temptations to be angry and lash out at someone, temptations uh, to whatever. If you want to call it a demon, call it a demon. If you want to call it psychology, call it psychology. However it makes sense to you, we all know that from time to time there is something inside of us that tells us to do something that we don't think we should do or that we really don't want to do or that we know full well we ought not to do. But nevertheless, there's a voice that tells us not only that we can do it, but that we are entitled to do it, that we have a right to do it, that we should do it for no other reason than that we deserve to do it. Hear me when I say I I don't I don't think that being a Christian is about fighting with that voice, that uh, demon, that psychological manifestation, whatever. I actually think that a good chunk of being Christian, a good chunk of the Christian life, is simply learning how to let go of it. Letting it fly away until only you and God are left. Blessed are the pure in heart, Jesus said they will see God. Let us be those who listen to only one voice. I hope you stick around. We've got an interesting sermon for you today. This is the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Luke, the 13th chapter. Hear the word of the Lord. At that very time, there were some present who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their own sacrifices. 
He asked them, do you think that because these Galileans suffered in this way that they were worse sinners than all the other Galileans? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as they did. Or those 18 who were killed when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think that they were worse evildoers than all the others living in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all perish just as they did. Then he told them a parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. And he came looking for fruit on it and found none. So he said to the gardener, see here, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree and still I find none. Cut it down. Why should it be wasting the soil? He replied, sir, let it alone for one more year until I dig around it and put manure on it. And if it bears fruit next year, well and good. But if not, then you can cut it down. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. to you this morning from the title, Trading the Evening News for a Pile of Manure. It's a pretty fair trade, I would say. Trading the Evening News for a Pile of Manure. Please pray with me. And now, most holy and merciful God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We ask that the words of my mouth and that the meditations of all of our hearts might be acceptable in your sight. O God, you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Now, I know some of you may find this a little hard to believe. And some of you might even find it a bit uh, macabre. But believe it or not, one of my favorite parts of my job is being around folks when they're going to die. I know. I know it's strange, right? But but I'm not weird or anything, at least not in that way. It's just that there's something really holy about the space in a dying person's room. Usually, folks that are actively dying are relatively calm about it. Often, folks have accepted it, and they're ready to move forward into that next mystery without any fear or doubt in their hearts. And their family and their friends are often gathered around their bedside, and they're there with the knowledge that that this is a holy moment, you know? So they're telling stories, maybe crying a little bit. They, I, I, I've seen folks reconcile old grudges over the deathbed of a loved one. And believe it or not, 
I've heard a surprising amount of laughter around the bed of a dying person. It's almost as if death strips away the carapace we walk around with, all the the shell and the armor that we put up throughout our days on this earth, and it allows us to be real with one another, vulnerable. And often when I'm in that place with those people, there's something inside of me that just doesn't want to leave. Now that's nine times out of ten. A powerful, thick spiritual experience at the end of life. A holy time when you can just tell God is in the room. And then there's folks like Pam. I visited Pam all the way back in 2011. I don't recall ever having met the woman prior to that time. She never came to church, but she was technically a member. And one day her daughter called me um, from some other state and said, hey, you better go see my mom. She's in the hospital and this looks like it could be it. I said, oh, okay, well, I take it you're on your way up to Ohio? She said, no. I said, really? She said, yeah, I'm I'm super busy and everything down here, but I just thought you should know. And I thought, okay, this should be interesting. So I go to the hospital, walk in the room and say, hey, Pam, it's Derek from church. She said, who? I said, Derek, the the preacher from from your church. She said, oh, geez, okay. And I'll never forget this. I walk into the room, and you know they have that TV in the corner? The news was blaring, full blast. And I said, hey, Pam, it it, it was the, the death of Osama bin Laden. I'll never forget it. I said, hey, Pam, could, could we turn the TV down a little bit so we could talk? She picked up the remote and clicked the volume down exactly one click. So I, 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 I had to try to talk over this thing, and I said, so I hear you got some bad news this week. How are you feeling? She said, fine. I said, oh, well, your daughter said that this might be terminal, and you only have a few days to live. And still watching the TV, she said, well, yeah, but I'm okay. And I said, okay. I I just prayed over her, for her, and that was it. We didn't talk about her death or her life or her daughter. We didn't share any stories. There were no family members there um, um, basking in that holy moment. And as I walked out of the hall, I distinctly heard the volume of the television go up one click. And afterward, I just went home feeling sort of empty and sad. At that very time, there were some present who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. 
Jesus wants to talk about the end of the world. But they only want to talk about current events. Jesus wants to talk to them about the state of their souls. He wants them to consider their ultimate destiny before God. And his followers want to discuss the first century version of the evening news. He spends nearly all of Luke chapter 12, if you read it, talking about a new kingdom that is breaking in upon the world. And he spends pages and paragraphs telling them everything they need to do to get ready for that. Settling disputes among themselves, emptying themselves of all of their their greed and selfishness, preparing their hearts for the possibility of persecution and death. And above it all, he says, do not worry about your life what you will eat or your body, what you will wear. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. Consider the lilies of the field who neither toil nor nor spin. Do not be afraid, little flock, he says, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Jesus is trying to give them good news. He's trying to have a holy conversation. And at that very moment, it says, they basically want to talk about what's on TV. Did you hear about Pontius Pilate murdering the Galileans? What about the Tower of Siloam? I heard someone knocked it down. 18 people died. So here's Jesus trying to get them to take stock of their lives, trying to get them to consider their place in the universe, and it can't get through because they are so caught up in the world of power and politics that surrounds them. The great German theologian Karl Barth is often quoted wrongly, I might add, as saying, the Christian preacher ought to write their sermon with the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other. And ever since then, there has been this assumption that it's a preacher's job to help their parishioners think about current events. That preaching is supposed to be somehow relevant to the world around you. Well, for the record, allow me to say that I can think of nothing less relevant to the world that surrounds us than the gospel of Jesus Christ. I can think of nothing less relevant to a world that is convinced that peace is maintained through war and happiness is maintained through wealth. To that world, there is nothing less relevant, less important, of less value than a first century homeless Jew talking about nonviolence, prayer, reconciliation in caring for people on the margins of society. In fact, 
I would say that we call the gospel good news precisely because it is not relevant to that world. It refuses to be dominated by that world. It refuses to have its horizon of possibility lowered by the standards of that world in which bad news is king. So Jesus says these these Galileans, you think they were worse sinners than the rest of us? What about those victims at the Tower of Siloam? Basically, he's asking, look, is God even in this stuff anywhere? Because let me tell you, death is coming for us all. Judgment is coming for us all. And unless you repent, unless you change your life, unless you start thinking differently and acting differently, you're going to end up just like them. What Jesus does is he takes the worldly, political, high-stakes game of life and death, and he plucks it down from this perch that the crowd has put it on, and he holds it in front of their faces, and then he points it at their hearts and says, this is where the revolution is. What happens in here? What happens in the soul? Where do you think all that hatred and bitterness and greed comes from? You can cry out for justice for Galilee and Siloam, but unless you change this, you're no better off. Pilot or no pilot. In my mind, the greatest political insight of all time came from the great Trappist monk, Thomas Merton. He was riding a bus in 1939, long before he ever took his vows as a monk, and the news was breaking of a second great war in Europe. And he said, there was something in my mind the recognition that somehow I myself am responsible for this war. That Hitler is not the only one who has started it. I have my share in it too. It was a very sobering thought, he says, and yet it's deep and probing light by its very truth eased my soul. I made up my mind to go to communion that day. While the whole world is ablaze with talk of the Allies and the Axis and trying to figure out what to do about this guy named Hitler, Thomas Merton is just a man on a bus realizing that his part in the war effort, his role in this news story is first and foremost to care for his own soul, to nurture and cultivate his own spirit, to start bearing fruit that leads to love instead of the fruit that leads to Holocaust. 
He told them a parable. A man had a tree planted in his vineyard. And he came looking for fruit on it and found none. So he said to the gardener, see here. For three years I have come looking for fruit on this tree and still I find none. Cut it down. Why should it be wasting the soil? He replied, sir, let it alone for one more year until I dig around it and put manure on it. And if it bears fruit next year, well and good. But if not, then you can cut it down. I love that. Jesus wants to, or the people want to talk about the news. Jesus wants to talk about manure. They want to talk about power and politics and current events, and Jesus gives them horticulture. They want to talk about statecraft. Jesus wants to talk about soul craft. The thing about manure is that it takes time and work. You can't just um, dump some poop next to a tree and expect it to grow. Ask my dogs. You actually have to dry it out first. And then you have to carefully mix it into the ground to condition the soil. So you gotta, you got to break it up. You've you got to cut up the clay and the dirt and with a shovel or a spade. And then you've got to roll up your sleeves and you've got to get in there and you've got to mix it up with your hands. I've seen so many people look for quick and easy solutions to life's greatest problems. Sometimes we want a Bible passage that'll just solve our worries for us, almost like it's a, a magic spell or something like that. Or folks who, who, who come and, and seek pastoral advice about a relationship or a spiritual issue, and I tell them, oh, it'll be a while before this gets resolved. And they say, so what, like two weeks? And I say, no, more like two years. And their eyes get all wide and astonished. We're used to having a problem and then being able to fix it immediately. You break your arm, you go to the hospital. Your dishwasher's busted, you got to go get a new one. Oh, it's going to take you a whole week to get a new one? Well, I better go buy some paper plates then. But when you're dealing with a soul, when you're dealing with the microcosm, the, the massive universe that is the human heart, there is no easy answer. There's nothing you can buy. There's no pill you can take. What we're seeking here is redemption, sanctification, the salvation of our souls. And that's hard work. You have to get down on your knees and you have to roll up your sleeves and stick your hands in some stinky stuff. And it is unpleasant. It'll make you gag sometimes if you get close enough 
to the refuse of your own life. And if you're not careful, it can even make you sick. Working with manure means sifting through the vestigial waste of life, literally drawing nutrition from filth, growth from decay, life from death. But that's what soul craft is. It's the willingness to take stock of your situation. To be real about the fact that you've got a tree that just ain't producing its fruit and your soil is hard and dried up. And maybe you've got a a, a great pile of manure that needs sifted through. Maybe your relationships are a mess. Maybe you're depressed about yesterday or anxious about tomorrow, frustrated that, that, that you can't find joy in your life, mad that you can't find lasting peace, confused about where to go next and wondering where is God in all of this? Soulcraft isn't about walking away or turning on the television to medicate yourself with armchair punditry. Soulcraft is getting elbow deep in the muck and mire of human life churning through the mistakes you've made, the damage you've done, the hurt you've caused, and then lovingly, painstaking it, painstakingly laying it down around your soul and letting it go, believing that God is in the manure somewhere, trusting that his life will somehow bear fruit into yours. It might come as a surprise to you that Jesus didn't actually write the parable of the fig tree. The original version was part of an ancient story called the Epic of Ahikar that came out centuries before Christ ever walked the earth. But in that first version, the owner goes up to the tree and he tells the tree that he's going to cut it down because it doesn't produce much fruit. And the tree is very apologetic and says, oh, just give me one more year. Give me a little more time. And the owner says, up to this day, you have been utterly useless. And in the future, you will not become useful. So the end of that story is he cuts the tree down. Do you see the difference? In the first story, the owner gives up on the tree. He calls it helpless and hopeless. And he cuts it down and uses it to heat his house. But in Jesus' version of the story, there's a third character. Not just an owner in a tree, but a gardener. A gardener who intercedes for the tree. A gardener who pleads with the owner, just give me one more year. Let me spread mulch. Let me water it. Let me trim it. Just give me one more year. You see, Jesus is not the one who wants to cut the tree down. Jesus is the gardener. Jesus is the one saying, we can do this if we just 
hold our noses and get our hands dirty and, and work up a bit of sweat, we can coax some, some fruit out of this life of yours. We can make progress. We can reap a harvest. But we got to do work now. We got to sift through the stinky stuff. We got to dig up the hard earth of your life. There's not much time, but if we start right now, then in a year, maybe good things really will happen. Lent is a time for, above all things, sobriety. So let me say something intended to be very sobering. In my nine, or excuse me, I guess it's ten, uh, twelve years now, of appointed ministry, I've never had a year where I didn't bury at least one of my parishioners. I can quite confidently say, brothers and sisters, that by this time next year, at least one of you will be dead. As John the Baptist once said, the axe is already lying at the foot of the tree. Life is precious and ephemeral, like a sapling trying to push out her very first apple. Death is bold and capricious like an axe. How are you, fellow gardener, going to live the next year of your life? These words I offer to you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, friends, I'm sorry if that, uh, that sermon ended on kind of a down note for you there, but I do think Lent is a time for honesty. Um, perhaps more than anything else, it's a time be sober and honest with yourself and with God and with your neighbors. You know, so much of what we have to be honest about is the manure in our life, the waste, uh, the poison stuff that we would normally just want to flush away and put far from us um, whenever we can. But I think we're called to something else. I think we're called to roll up our sleeves and sift through it, to churn it, to integrate it, and to use it to somehow nourish our lives, to somehow um, allow God uh, to work through it to grow good fruit. I hope this Lent um, you put some manure down and that uh, by the time Easter morning comes, you'll be able to reap a harvest. 
And now may the love of God the Father, the grace and peace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit go with you and be with you now and always.